We're now going to turn to chapter 3 and look at verses 1 to 13. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me, to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Thank you. Table tennis update. Um, At some point in the weekend, we've got to do a three instead of a two. There are seven blessings. uh, Chosen, adopted, uh, redeemed, forgiven, enlightened, included, sealed. And I was going to do three tomorrow morning. I think I'm going to do three now. Then those of you who are just here today will get five of seven and not four of seven. So um, I'm going to kind of just pick up the pace very slightly, but we're going to manage in 40 minutes all three, next three blessings. Remember, we're looking at the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. Paul says, every spiritual blessing, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So these seven taken together represent the the comprehensiveness of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, which is all, remember, for the praise of his glory. The primary application is always praise God. It's not first and foremost, actually, to go and do something. The primary application is always to praise him, to bless him, to acknowledge his rule and his reign and his goodness and his greatness. Where have we got to so far? We've seen that we were chosen to be holy and blameless in his sight this morning. We've seen that we were adopted to sonship. Now we're going to look at these next three, redeemed, forgiven and enlightened. I've decided to go for three this evening because I think the word redeemed and the word forgiven, they're slightly more familiar words. And they're they're kind of slightly more common words. They're the words you might hear uh, uh, Christians use a lot, especially the word forgiven. And therefore, I'm hoping we can kind of go through those reasonably quickly before we get to what it means to be enlightened. So let's begin with redemption. And I'm just using the first phrase here of verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood. It's a word we use a lot, we sing a lot, but I'm not sure there's anything in modern life which really equates to redemption. It's quite an odd idea when you stop and think about it, and the reason for that is it's a word from the slave market. 
So it's not a particularly nice place for the word to come from. It's a word from the slave market. By the way, just if you're in any doubt, the Bible is very clear about slavery. You sometimes hear people say, well, the Bible endorses slavery and that kind of thing. If you read, for example, the beginning of 1 Timothy, you'll discover what Paul thinks about slave traders. You'll discover that he groups them together with the worst sinners in the world. So the Bible is not unequivocal about I'm sorry, the Bible is not equivocal about slavery. It's unequivocal about it. Nevertheless, Paul knows this is the culture he lives in, and so he borrows heavily, and in fact the Bible borrows heavily, from the slave market. It's where the language of redemption comes. I think probably the only thing in modern life that's anything like it is um, what we used to call the pawn shop. Now that has a different meaning, of course, a P-A-W-N, where if you were short of cash, I guess you'd call it a cash converter now, wouldn't you? If, you? if you were short of cash, you would go along before payday, you'd take along your watch. Maybe you had a nice um, family heirloom that was a watch. And you'd take it along to the pawn shop, and the guy in the pawn shop would say, um, he'd look at it and say, I'll give you five bob for that. And you'd say, OK, take the five bob. And then um, you'd, uh, sorry, five pounds or something. Let's, let's make it. I don't know why I said five bob. I, I, no, I, I don't remember pre-decimalisation, just to make it clear. <laughs> I am not that old. <laughs> it's because I was preaching in Lowestoft this week and I was kind of in slightly in uh, older person mentality. <laughs> Are you from Lowestoft? Congratulations. <laughs> it's, it's, a lov- it's a lovely place. Yeah. <laughs> but, but well done for coming here. Um, <laughs> so you take along your watch and he'd say, I'll give you a fiver for it. And he'd say, OK, you take the five pounds. And then when payday came, you would take the five pounds back and you would buy back your watch. He would redeem it. And if you couldn't ever raise the money, he would put it in the shop window. He would sell it to get his money back that way. It used to be a very common sight throughout Europe, pawn shops. They had a little symbol. Anybody know? Some of you older people, anyone know what the symbol by a pawn shop was? Three balls. Does anybody know why it's three balls? Ah. This may be a question in the quiz later. In which case, you're set up for life. And the three balls were the symbol of the Lombard Bank, Italian bank, which basically had a monopoly over pawn shops for most of the 16th, 17th century. So the three balls, symbol of the Lombard Bank. Um, It's the kind of thing you get asked in a pub quiz, isn't it? Here we are. Verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. You'll know, I imagine many of you, that this language of redemption first crops up, really, in the Exodus story. And in the Exodus story, the people of God, um, only 70 plus 2, 72 of them, have gone into Egypt. And then after a number of years, 430 years, they've grown to probably about 2 million, 2.5 million. And Pharaoh realises they're a threat to the Egyptian civilization, and so the the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. They're made to work hard for nothing, really, apart from food and lodging, I guess. They are under the whip. They have to make bricks. They can't do anything about it. That's the point of slavery. They can't do anything about it. And in fact, when they complain, and when they say to Pharaoh, this is too hard, what does Pharaoh say? He just says, make more bricks. There's no sympathy whatsoever. In fact, quite the opposite. So they're totally bound into this system. They can't do anything about it. What they can't do is they can't buy themselves out. 
in ancient slavery, um, you used to be able to buy yourself out. People sometimes sold themselves into slavery if, if a bit like the man at the pawn shop, they'd run out of money. Um, and the, the idea behind that was if you had a rich relative, a kind of nice rich uncle, he would come along, he could pay the price and buy you back. He could redeem you. But the Israelites in slavery in Egypt had no one to redeem them, no one to pay the price. Even Moses, when he came, he tried to be a bit of a leader. He got into a bit of a, a set to, didn't he, um, with an Egyptian and, and killed an Egyptian. He, he couldn't do it. And the Israelites certainly couldn't do it themselves. They were stuck. Until, of course, God did something. God intervened. God redeemed them. God paid a price. As the story unfolds, you discover that price is the Passover lamb, which is sacrificed. And because of the Passover lamb, which was sacrificed, the people were saved. And forever after, that moment was was referred to as our redemption. Our redemption from Egypt. And that paradigm became a pattern for what God promised to do through the seed of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham, the, the, the prophet who would be just like Moses, the, the king who would be just, in, just like David and in David's line. God promised that he would be the redeemer, that he would pay the price. So when Christians talk about redemption, it's that pattern which is in view. Now, our redemption, redemption of course, is not to be saved from slavery to an earthly power, a king or a slave trade or whatever it may be. Our redemption is freedom from slavery to sin. Sin, sin before we are Christians, holds us captive. It's like being under Pharaoh. There's nothing you can do about it. You, you, can, you can try and work your way out of it, but it doesn't work. You wish you could buy your way out of it, but you can't pay the price. You, there's, there's no way out. And it's almost that the parallel is, is exact. That when you cry out... When you try and defeat sin, sin just says to you, more bricks. And it becomes more of a weight upon you. That is the story of salvation. That's the story of redemption. And of course, what God has done for us in Jesus is he has paid the price. In other words, he has redeemed us. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Not by the payment of a financial price, but by the payment of Jesus' blood. The greatest price of all, in fact. Redemption through his blood. But this is the thing we need to understand about redemption. Redemption is not about being slave, but now being free. Those who are redeemed are not redeemed just to live however they want. Redemption, you see, in the Bible is really about this. It's about a change of ownership. Our ownership used to be enslaved to sin. Now we have been bought at a price. I've just got one or two cross-references, but let's just turn to one together. Just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you've got it. One Corinthians five and six, Paul is explaining to the Corinthians how they need to live, and especially how they need to not be like the world when it comes to sexual morality. In fact, they need to flee from what he calls immorality, porneia. So we get the word pornographic from him. They need to flee from that in the world. Look what he says in verse eighteen: Flee from sexual immorality. 
All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. You read a similar thing in Romans 6, 7. Paul talks about us once being slaves to sin, but now being slaves to righteousness. Redemption for us is not about being made free. It's about a change of ownership. And because there has been a change of ownership, we are not our own. Now, some people would see that as a straitjacket, as a constraint. They want to be free. The idea of being freed from something, that's liberating, that's that's an exciting concept. But the idea of, of just being brought from one kind of slavery to another, that's a terrible idea. Now, in part, that's because we don't quite understand slavery today as it was in the Bible. But nevertheless, we need to understand that with God, God who is gracious, perfectly good, perfectly kind, perfectly holy, to be a slave to him, to belong to him, is a good thing. It's not a bad thing at all. Because his ways are good. His ways are just. His ways are perfect. His ways are holy. So when we read in Ephesians that we have been redeemed, we need to understand it this way, that we have had our ownership certificate changed. Someone has crossed out slave to sin, something that we couldn't do ourselves, and instead has replaced it with a slave to righteousness. Someone who is free to live for God. Someone who is liberated from the pain and the penalty and the burden of sin, which just shouts out at us more bricks all the time and instead free to live for our Father. Now, um, you can begin to see again, can't you, that these um, kind of theological, doctrinal points, whatever you want to call them, are immensely practical. It's not the case that Ephesians 1 to 3 is all doctrine, and Ephesians 4 to 6 is all practice. Because if we've been redeemed, it must affect how we live. So how are we to think of this blessing? Again, we're to think of it in two ways. First of all, it is to fill us with praise. For God has done what we could not. He has paid the price. We mustn't diminish that price, of course. It's a high price, his blood. But God has done what we could not. He has redeemed us. And because he has redeemed us, he has a claim upon us. Not a kind of the claim of a, a you know a gangmaster or or, a, or, or a, a bad boss or employer or someone who is going to crack the whip at us, but someone who lovingly and kindly says to us, "Now you are mine. Will you live for me?" So the response to this blessing then is one like we've done before. We need to just bow our heads. Let's do that now, and let's just. Ask God to fill us with a sense of praise that he has bought us. And let's commit ourselves again to live for him.
Amen. Now, let's talk about forgiveness. Redemption and forgiveness go together. Um, They go together here as well. You can see that, can't you? Almost so much so that they look as though they're one and the same. In him, we have redemption through his blood, comma, the forgiveness of sins, comma, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. It almost looks as though forgiveness of sins is another way of describing redemption through his blood. But it's not. They're two separate things. But they belong together. And this is why they belong together. You've, you've got to imagine for a moment that, that a slave has been bought down at the market. Okay, it's not a very nice place. I know that. Um, it's not the kind of place that you want to go to. It's not the kind of place that we like to think about. But in the context of the Roman world, imagine that a, an owner has come along and he has, has bought the slave or bought back the slave. He's redeemed the slave. And so the slave, let's say it's me, he, he used to be over here with this owner, now he's been bought at a price and he's with a new owner. Well, that's great news, isn't it? I'm in my new master's household, my new master who's going to care for me and he he loves me and he's going to be kind to me. Brilliant news. But there's a problem. I'm still wearing the clothes that my old master gave me. And they're not very nice clothes. They're a bit grubby. They're dirty around the edges. They're not befitting the the king who has bought me, where his household are all clothed in bright, clean clothes. And this grubby slave, well, he's been brought in, but he doesn't exactly look the part. Well, that little illustration shows us, just in broad terms, it's not not exactly right theologically, but it's close enough. It, It demonstrates in broad terms the difference between redemption and forgiveness. Redemption is about a change of ownership. Forgiveness is about dealing with our dirty rags, our sins, our wrongdoings, our trespasses. And in order to serve the king and be with the king and love the king, we need both. We need to be redeemed. We need to be brought into his household. We've been bought at a price. But we also need our dirty rags to have been dealt with. We need our sins to have been covered over. And that's what forgiveness is. So when we become Christians, these two things happen. God has bought us with a price, but he's also changed our clothes. He's taken off our dirty rags and he's clothed us in new clothes. In fact, he's clothed us in the clothes of Jesus so that our sins are no longer in front of him. But as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And suddenly we're ready and equipped to serve in the king's presence because we've been redeemed, because we've been forgiven. I wonder if I can put it like this. Redemption deals with the inside. It's about a change of ownership. Forgiveness deals with the outside. Again, it's it's a little bit simplistic, but it kind of begins to explain there's a slight and a subtle difference between the two. That my ownership has been changed. I now belong, body and soul, to Christ Jesus. But that doesn't actually deal with the consequences and the effect of all the sins that I've committed. And so I am also forgiven. And therefore I stand in the king's presence, ready and able to serve him, because both have happened. You know that um, 
in the Harry Potter books. You know Dobby, the house elf. Do you know the Harry Potter books? Some of you know them. Dobby, the house elf. And they keep, they keep him humble, the family that own him, the Malfoys originally. They keep him humble by not giving him nice clothes to wear. He's his old rags to wear. And so it keeps him humble. And then once Harry gives him a piece of clothing, the ownership is transferred That's kind of equating redemption and forgiveness all together in one. But it it kind of sums up what's going on in verse 7, redemption and forgiveness. That as we um, come to Christ, we are given new clothes, we are given a new heart, we are transformed, we are bought, and suddenly we're there ready to serve the king. And all of this happens through his blood. Now, I wonder if one of the challenges we have when it comes to forgiveness is we kind of believe in cheap forgiveness today. We say, I forgive you, very easily. And we forget just what forgiveness costs. You see, let's say um, you and I are talking to one another, Hugh, Hugh and I are talking to one another, and he says something which I find offensive. I can't believe that would ever happen, but let's say it did happen. And, and I, look a bit, I look a bit upset few tears in my eyes, I'm a sensitive guy, and he realises he's upset me, he says, oh, well, forgive me. And I say, yeah, of course. And we move on as, as though, you know, it didn't cost anything, there was no big deal, and we just got over it. But what we need to understand as Christians is that forgiveness is never cheap. It was achieved through his blood. I think that through his blood probably belongs both with the word that comes before it, redemption, and the word that comes after it, forgiveness. For we read in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So we've got to understand that as we relate to one another, forgiveness is a very costly thing. In fact, I think I'd go a little bit further than that. And I would say that the only reason that we can forgive one another is because we have been forgiven. You see, forgiveness is about the taking away of sin. It's not just saying, oh, well, never mind. Let's pretend like it didn't happen. Forgiveness is actually the taking away of sin. That's what God has done when he's forgiven us. He's not just looking down from heaven and saying, oh, well, we'll forget about it this time. He's saying, no, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. I I always think about this when I see someone on the news who's been through a terrible tragedy. You know the kind of situation I mean when a a child has been um, abducted or killed, there's been some terrible tragedy, and you see someone on the news who's a Christian and they say about the person who's committed the tragedy, well, I forgive them. I think to myself, well, I wonder if you really know what that means. I wonder if you've really grasped it. I'm not sure that's really the right word to use. Can you really forgive somebody who doesn't want to be forgiven, for example? Can you really take their sin away? I think Christians can forgive other people, other Christians especially, because we understand that Jesus has taken sin away. But if I, if I meet someone on the street... who who does something to me, you know, someone cuts me up in my car, I can't wind down the window and say, I forgive you. (laughs) I don't think that's right. I can say, never mind. I can say I'm a Christian, so I can be peaceful about it. I can be gracious. But I don't think I can forgive someone unless they want to be forgiven, unless they too know Christ. Who can forgive sins but God himself? So when you read about Jesus saying, um, you know, we need to be quick to forgive others as God has forgiven you, I think he's talking about relationships within the community, within the Christian community, where we forgive one another, not just because we think forgiveness is a good thing, but because we know the price has been paid. We know that Jesus has died. We know that sins have been taken away. That's how we can forgive one another. 
Now, I don't want to get hung up on that. What I want to do is make this point. We mustn't be glib about forgiveness. The danger is if we if we kind of cheapen forgiveness amongst ourselves, then we end up cheapening the forgiveness that God offers us in Christ. Oh yeah, of course. God can forgive my sins. Can do anything. Actually, God had to send his son to die to forgive sins. That is why Paul describes it in the way that he does, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. The forgiveness of sins is a lavish gift. It couldn't be anything else but. For it is costly, so costly, it took the life of the Son. There's obviously a a very direct application in the way that we need to deal with each other. We need to be quick to forgive one another because God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. So there need to be no grudges and there needs to be no bad blood and bad feeling and, and, and wrong actions between us. And when there is, there needs to be forgiveness. But before even we get to that level, we have to say praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to his name, blessing to his name. Why? Because he's forgiven us. He's taken my sins away through the death of his son. He's lavished his grace upon me, poured his grace. Can you kind of just imagine what that lavishing is? Um, I've got a Lowestoft story for you. Um, It's a nice story. So I was in Lowestoft and um, we were having lunch. And... um, Lunch came round, and I'm a celiac, so I can't eat gluten. So they'd made me a special lunch, it was very kind of them, which was basically a little kind of slice of cake they got from a packet and put some fresh raspberries with it, which is a nice little touch. And um, the lady came round, and um, she said, would you like cream? Now, I don't normally eat cream at home. I, have, I live on yoghurt. Right? It's a very dull life in Market Harbour. <laughs> yoghurt for tea, yoghurt for tea. Anyway, um, so the lady came round with the, the cream, and um, I looked at this cake... Um, If you've ever eaten any gluten-free food, um, you'll know this. It's really dry. It's kind of quite crumbly and really dry. So when I saw the cream come round, my eyes lit up. And the lady said to me, would you like some cream? I said, yes, please. So she poured out a bit of cream. And I mean a bit. Um, Barely two drops, really. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Decoration, really, I'd call it. And um, I looked at it, and I must have looked a bit pained. And she said to me, you want some more? (laughs) Yes. She poured a little bit more on. That's as much as I was going to get. What I was longing for was that she would lavish cream on this cake. Now, I know that wouldn't be very good for me, but that's what I really wanted, to take away the dryness of gluten-free baking. I really wanted grace to be cream to be lavished out of the jug (laughs) onto my gluten-free slice. It's my lowest off story. Do you like it? Yeah. I thought that one up just now, just for you. I wasn't going to use that. Um, that, That's the idea. Something that is poured out in abundance. And the thing that is poured out in abundance is grace. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So the response, therefore, is, again, praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's knowing his forgiveness, to be delighting in it, and wanting to forgive others. Do you have a moment of quiet? And then we'll look at the third blessing.
Amen. Well, number five, enlightened. Now, I'm aware that the word enlightened doesn't appear in the passage, but it's the best word I could think of to describe what is being brought to us in verse 9, 10, well, 9 and 10, end of verse 8, 9 and 10. And verses 9 and 10 describe the greatest secret in the world. I wonder what you would think is the greatest secret in the world. Some people think the greatest secret in the world is who on earth was behind the grassy knoll. If only we could know that. No one really seems to know. What happened in November 19... Sorry, you could have puzzled at me because you're too young. November 1963, President Kennedy was shot. Supposedly someone was behind the grassy knoll. You knew what I was talking about, didn't you? Yeah, we're all right, you and me. All right. Some people think that's the greatest secret in the world. Some people think the greatest secret in the world is this. What's in Area 51? Oh, what's that? Um, Area 51, Nevada desert. It's where the US Air Force store all the UFOs, supposedly. There's a big hangar. If you go on Google Earth, it's all blacked out. What's going on? All very mysterious. Some people think that's the greatest secret in the world. Most people in the UK think the greatest secret in the world is how on earth are we going to get out of the EU? Don't ask me. I'm, I'm, not trying, I'm not being political. Just, no one seems to know what the remedy is going to be. But beyond all that, there is a deeper secret that no one, apart from Christians, knows the answer to. And the secret is this. What is, or the question rather, what is God doing in the world? What is God doing in the world? It's the, the big question. You might perhaps phrase it a different way if you wanted to. If you wanted to be a hitchhiker um, in the galaxy, you might phrase it, what's the meaning of life? Uh, You might phrase it a different way. What's the point of it all? Where is the world heading? What is God up to? That is the greatest question. And the greatest secret is this. Listen, verse 9. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. The greatest secret in the world, which has been revealed to Christians, is this, that God is in the business of planning and purposing and carrying out his plans of bringing everything in the universe together under Christ Jesus. Absolutely everything. In fact, Paul uses a technical word for it. He calls it a mystery. That's why we read a bit of chapter 3, because that talks about the mystery as well. He talks about the mystery, Paul. The, the mystery in the New Testament is something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. Only it hasn't been revealed to everybody. It's only been revealed to those who have these spiritual blessings in Christ. We're the only people who can understand it, grasp it, believe it, acknowledge it, appreciate it, if you like. Because we know Christ. So if, you're, if, you're, if someone was, was not a Christian, they could read these verses, they could understand them. They wouldn't really mean very much. And yet to Christians, they mean everything. We know where the world is going. We know what the point of life is. We know what God is doing. He's bringing all things together under Christ. 
Now, this might not be very sexy to you. You know, the, the idea of um, being chosen, I'm chosen, adopted, I'm adopted, um, you know, redeemed, bought back in, out of slavery and then brought into God's kingdom, have my sins forgiven. Those are kind of sexy blessings. Okay? They're, they're, they're nice things. Yeah, they're great things. You get excited about them. And then you think, number five, he's told me his plan. Well, I could take it or leave it. But, but can you see how key this is to the Christian life? We know where things are heading. And God works out all the detail along the way. God is not some kind of strategist in heaven saying, well, I've got a big plan. Let's see how it works out. Look as we read on in verse 11. We're going to come back to verse 11 tomorrow morning. But look as we read on in verse 11 now. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So, so God is not some kind of general who's just planning something in, in kind of big terms and he passes it on to others and says, there you are, you work out the detail. He has worked out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And every detail that he has worked out is a further step along the way to the fulfilment of this grand plan to work out so that everything is summed up, everything is brought together under Christ Jesus. Big plan, little detail. I love military history. And um, one of the things I like reading about is D-Day. I take men's trips over to um, D-Day beaches. It's a good road trip for blokes. So it's a bit sexist, isn't it? It's a good road trip for anybody. But I I only take blokes. And then we go across to the D-Day beaches and we just um, get in the car and and drive over there and have a look at the beaches and stuff. And and the the story behind D-Day is fascinating. And, and people often think that, you know, it was the, um, you know, Montgomery, who was the, the British general who was in charge of all the land forces, and Eisenhower over him, who was the supreme commander. And they have visions of Eisenhower and Montgomery pouring over maps, saying, yeah, I'm going to move that little division there, and that little division there, and that little division there. They didn't do any of that. They had planners. They had planners who would work out the details. They would think of the big picture, then they would push the plans down and they would say, you make it happen, you make it happen. You work out what you want to do, you make it happen. And one of the reasons that um, the initial assault was so successful is because those chains of command worked very well. And one of the reasons that the next 30 days were not so successful is those chains of command broke down. But there's none of that with God. God is not just the general, he's the next guy down, um, brigadier, the colonel, the major, the captain, the lieutenant, the, the right down to the private. He's working out all the details in conformity with the purpose of his will, to bring all things together under Christ. Now friends, that is great news for us, and I'll tell you why. Just look across at chapter 2 that we read this morning. Sorry, not chapter 2, um, chapter 1 that we read yesterday. Um, look at the rule of Christ as it's described. So midway through verse 19, let's pick up that sentence. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything, Listen, for the church. Christ is ruling and reigning for the church. That's us. 
In other words, it's kind of it's, it's Romans 8, slightly expanded. God has this extraordinary plan to bring all things together under Christ. He's working out all the detail along the way, every single detail, and he's doing it for the church. All things work together for the good of those who love him. Now, why is that a blessing to be let in on the secret? The blessing is this. Because I know where the world is heading, and because I know he is sovereign over the details, I can cope with anything that comes my way. Now, don't get me wrong, some things are pretty hard. I've had hard seasons of life, very tough. Family illnesses and all sorts of things that have really laid me low. And and it's sometimes difficult to understand how they fit into this big plan. But the big plan is there, and the blessing of being a believer is that we're enlightened. God has let us in on what he's doing. It's a terrible thing to have to go through the hardships of life, the difficulties of life, and not know that there's a purpose behind it. Um, just go back to the first, well, as soon as we're on world wars, go back to the First World War. Um, in the First World War, if you were in the trenches and you were a foot soldier, time and time again, the, the, the foot soldier in the trenches... Would, would write home, he would complain. I don't know what, this all, I don't know what it's all for. I know, I know we're going over the top tonight, but I don't know why. I don't know what the big plan is. By the time that um, the armies had got to the Second World War, they'd understand their mistake a little bit, certainly the American army, and they used to tell the soldiers what the plan was. So they could understand how their little bit, the little bit of hardship they had to go through, fitted into the, the big plan. So even though it was tough, even though it was dangerous, even though it was risky, even though they might lose their life, they understood that it was necessary in order to move their company a few steps forward and their, I don't know what comes next, their regiment, their division, the whole army, in order for the whole army to advance, they needed to play their little part. And that's what God has done here. He's shown us how there is a big plan to bring all things together under Christ. And he said to us, in effect, everything we go through, every up, every down, is a detail that I have planned out for you, for me, for Christ, who is head over everything, to bring all things together under him. And by the way, it's for your good. Now, please don't mishear me. If you've got a particularly tough season you're going through at the moment, perhaps some family issue or health issue or work issue, whatever else it may be, I don't want to diminish the pain of it. Those seasons can be really tough. Really tough. Nevertheless, the truth is still the truth. But every step is a step nearer the fulfilment, the culmination of that plan, where all things will be brought together under Christ Jesus. So to be enlightened, therefore, is not kind of whatever. It's not meaningless. It's not one for the boffins or people who are interested in plans and stuff like that. You say, no, I live for the moment. I don't, what's going to, I don't care what's going to happen tomorrow. The answer is you can only live in the moment if you know what's going to happen tomorrow. And ultimately, we do know what's going to happen tomorrow. For all things will be brought together under Christ. Now, the plan hasn't been kind of um, fully effected yet. We saw that in verse 10. It'll be put into effect when the time has reached their fulfillment. But it's working towards it. It's working in that direction. 
And God, in his good pleasure, has brought us in on the secret. The greatest secret in the world, therefore, is this. What is God doing? But it's not a secret to us. It's, to use Paul's words in chapter 3, a mystery which has now been revealed. How wonderful it is, I sing with my kids when they're little, to be a part of God's amazing plan. Our God is a great big God. You know the song. It is wonderful to be a part of God's amazing plan and to know what it is. First response is always the same. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, you've shown me the plan. Thank you. Bless your name. But also to do this, to pray that you would be able to see today in the light of what God is doing ultimately. And actually in a community of believers where some people are up, some people are down, that's the way life is, to be able to encourage others to see today in the light of what God is doing ultimately. I don't mean in a glib way. You know, someone has a terrible moment of suffering, you say, oh, well, never mind. Um, you know, Jesus is going to return, he'll be king. I don't mean that kind of glib answer that sometimes Christians who are a bit naive give to one another because we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, but to be able to prayerfully and pastorally get alongside one another and put our arms around one another and, and comfort one another and say, this is bad. This is, this is sin in the world. This is the broken world in which we live. But we know where it's going. We know where it's going. And therefore we have hope. Let's make that our prayer, shall we? Bow our heads in prayer. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment. Father God, we thank you that you've bought us. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for paying the price for us. Thank you that price not only redeems us, but covers all our sins, removes them from us. Thank you that we are clean before you, Father God. And thank you, Spirit, for revealing to us this great plan and purpose. Thank you that we know where the world is headed Thank you, we know where our lives are going. And even though perhaps the immediate future for some of us seems uncertain, perhaps even painful, please help us to lift our eyes to what you are doing in the universe. I want to pray, Heavenly Father, especially for people in the room for whom this truth is a really hard one this evening. And there will be people who are struggling with life in different ways, struggling with health perhaps struggling with mental health or with family issues or with work, all kinds of different things. Father, please bring them great comfort. and May we know how to comfort one another. But may we also know how to live in today, for we know what you are doing tomorrow. Give us eyes to see that, we pray, Heavenly Father. May we be blessed in that sense. May we be content knowing that you have blessed us in the heavenly places, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For Jesus' sake. Amen.